On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to be talking about kids and, well, anxiety and things around issues in the world. We saw Greta Thunberg the other day speaking at the United Nations. And honestly, there was a sadness about that because this is a girl who says that since she was eight, she has been racked with fear and anxiety about the state of the world. Well, that's a lost childhood. That is all of her childhood, pretty much, gone, tied up in fear. And we're hearing about many, many, many kids around the world who are now having eco-anxiety. Should kids be dealing with this stuff this early? I know it's an important issue, but should kids really be tied up in this stuff? Or do we need to say, you'll have your adult adulthood soon enough. Enjoy your childhood right now. We'll talk about that one. Uh, we're also going to be chatting about a very unusual, very infuriating to many people case in Alberta that you've probably not heard about. You want to stick around for this one because you may be infuriated too. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I watched Greta Thunberg speak at United Nations yesterday. And afterwards, I saw a lot of people who were raving about her speech, and there is absolutely no question that it was very passionate. But I must admit, rather than being deeply moved by it, I felt a real sense of sadness because of the fact that this is a 16-year-old girl who, if you know anything about her story, has said that she became terrified of what was happening to the climate at age eight when she saw a video at school of a starving polar bear. And since then, for eight years now, she has been in a constant state of distress and anxiety and tumult about what's going on. And all I could think about when I'm watching her is, and he, knowing that part of the story, what about her childhood? She's had no childhood. I want to bring in someone who uh, knows a little bit about anxiety and those kind of things. Uh, Dr. Gail Saltz is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital. She is a psychoanalyst with the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. She's a columnist, best-selling author, podcast host, television commentator. Uh, she is an expert on stress, anxiety, emotional well-being, relationships, the mental health aspect of current news. And that is just the beginning of her resume. If I were to tell you, tell you the whole thing, we would have no time to talk to her. So I'll skip the rest. Uh, but nonetheless, we're glad to have Dr. Gail Saltz. Thanks for doing this today. Well, thanks for having me here. So I was reading today, a there's a new Washington Post Kaiser Foundation study out that found 70% of American teenagers apparently are living in some level of perpetual fear about the climate. And then I was reading in the National Post, a newspaper here, that here's their quote, students and children across North America and abroad also apparently experience unprecedented levels of stress and anxiety about crime, gun violence, economic issues, inequality, and the future state of the world. It's not normal for kids to be that tied up in worries about all these things, is it? You know, it depends on, on what, what time in history you're talking about. Um, it is, first of all, you know, anxiety is a normal human emotion. Everybody feels some amount of anxiety, and children included. Anxiety disorders, meaning anxiety that has risen to the level that it is impairing your ability to function, occurs in one out of every five children at some point in their childhood. So it's not, you know, rare for a child to suffer with even a lot of anxiety. Um, to, to worry about 
world issues, let's say, or really you could even say community issues, right? Because for the children that are worrying about it, you know, it's it's concern about what's going to happen in their neck of the woods um, is is one on the list of things that children do worry about. And the question really becomes, how much are they worrying about it? So, you know, you, you brought up um, this, frankly, remarkable young woman. Um, and, you know, she is actually has been public about being on the autism spectrum. Um, and it's unclear because she hasn't really talked about it, um, how anxious she really is or whether she's been able to sort of maintain more of an objectivity about it and concern as she progresses forward with this. But I would, I would say you could, you would really have to argue it certainly has not impaired her ability to function, right? I mean, she's, she's functioning at a higher level than many children would be able to. Um, she's chosen to put, you know, her energies into, into this. And you could also argue that she's in a rare position of doing something helpful. And I would say that helping um, in situations that are difficult or traumatic or anxiety-producing for kids and adults actually is relieving for their anxiety, right? It gives them somewhat of a sense of control. I mean, as a mental health professional, if somebody is, you know, has been in a traumatic situation, you know, one of the first things that we talk about being help, good for them, essentially, is finding a way to be helpful. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly she's not having a typical childhood. That That is for sure. Um, she seems to have a lot of family around her supporting what she's doing. Um, you, one certainly wouldn't want, it wouldn't be made for all children, let's put it that way, and um, and we wouldn't want all children to be so consumed with concerns about climate change that they can't do the the things that they're supposed to be able to do as children: go to school, have friends, go to sleep at night, um, enjoy their families and their relationships. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about the speech yesterday by Greta Thunberg at the United Nations and whether or not kids are young kids. She's 16, but even kids younger than that are equipped perhaps to deal with such heavy, heavy issues and whether they should be at that really young age. We're with Dr. Gail Saltz. Um, Before the break, and you, you bring up a great point that she seems to be doing something very positive with what she is doing. And she seems perhaps like she is capable of handling this. But there was a story in the Telegraph last week as well that said there are now psychologists and psychiatrists in Britain, and I don't know about the rest of the world, who apparently are being swamped by cases of what they're calling eco-anxiety to the point where they're trying now, or some are talking about making this a, an identifiable condition. And it sounds like then some kids, some people are getting maybe getting the story without getting the tools to handle. I don't know. I don't know how we interpret then what, mm-hmm. what that means. Well, I do think that, um, that, that we, you know, the, the general we and the media we and the parents of children we have to be careful in how we speak about this issue in terms of not totally catastrophizing it. So, you know, obviously we know 
I mean, in terms of you know the science information, there are there are great concerns. There are terrible, terrible possibilities, but they're possibilities. And um, when you when you talk with children, or when you talk, frankly, with anxious people in general, it's very easy to go from you know zero to a hundred in terms of your anxiety if someone can't rule out the worst, most calamitous mm. situation. And I, I think that when you talk with children about what's going on, you have to talk about concerns, you have to talk about, you know, potential for, for bad outcomes, but also work being done to try to prevent those bad outcomes. You have to do it in sort of a measured way and not in a catastrophic way. If, you know, if children are listening to nothing but potential catastrophe and that as a, as a certainty, then obviously that will overdrive anxiety. Uh, it would for anybody. Um, and you have to know your audience. So some children are more sensitive, are more prone to anxiety and fears, um, and parents have to consider that when they're talking with their child. But generally, being involved and, try, again, trying to help with something that is, is difficult you know, we could be talking about homelessness or, or, you know, disease states or, you know, things that are, that are terrible in the world, but being able to do something to help with them um, is usually a, a positive in terms of mental health, I would say. Do you, do you think uh, we've changed in how we do that? Because I was thinking back to, you know, when I was a kid, a teenager, a young teenager, and I don't know if you remember, you're probably way younger than this, so I, but there was a movie on TV in the 80s, uh, the day after, and it was all about a nuclear strike and what was going to happen when the United States all blew up because of a nuclear attack from Russia. And right. at that time, I remember my parents and many of my friends' parents, we weren't supposed to watch it because that was not something that we as young kids needed to be concerned about. That was considered a, a movie. Right. We didn't have the tools to be able to deal with that. I, it seems as though, and I don't know if parents have changed, but it seems as though parents now are now more willing to say, here, look at everything and let's figure out how you can deal with it. Well, I, don't, I, I think that uh, you should be mindful of media exposure because for kids that something that's playing and sounds horrendous and, and hyperbole over and over again will frighten them in a way that is not useful and not helpful. But that's different from getting information. And you can rest assured that children have fantastic imaginations and fantasy lives, and if they have a hint that something terrible is going on, their imagination can probably come up with something worse than what is actually <laughs> going on. So it's 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 reasonable to inform, and let's face it, in this day and age, there is no way that you are keeping your child from knowing that there are concerns about climate change. And I think informing them, but at the same time limiting, I, I don't think you need to show them the most hyperbole show or have the news on in the background that plays nothing but horrible, violent stories, you know, over and over and over again, because for them, it, that repetition feels like something is going on all the time or happening over and over again. So I think, yes, parents should do some reasonable limiting, but in, supply information, be willing to answer questions. It's better to answer a question than say, you know, that's not kid stuff or, you know, you're not equipped to, heal, to hear or deal with that because that actually might leave them more anxious. So informing them, answering their questions, um, but obviously if you have a child who is developing anxiety symptoms, um, and it's interfering with their ability to concentrate in school and participate in their social life. And um, then, then you need to bring them to a mental health professional because treatment 
frankly, isn't long. Um, it sets them back on track. It spares them a whole lot of suffering. It usually spares the family a whole lot of suffering. Um, and it's important. It's, it's, it's really important because, like I said, one out of every five children will suffer. I think the idea of making a diagnosis that's specifically eco-anxiety is not really helpful because <laughs> the reality is your child, if they're getting very, very anxious, they will be anxious about some content. The content isn't so important. What's important is the anxiety symptom, and if it, if it grows too large, then you want to treat it basically. And you want to be able them to be able to talk about their fears and concerns and anxieties and what they can do with that. You want to teach them coping skills for managing their fears and anxiety. Um, but, you know, whether they're anxious about, you know, the possibility that we're all going to die one day, um, you know, that they could get hit by a bus crossing the street tomorrow, that, you know, there is climate change, that, you know, in other words, the specific content could attach to many things depending on what's kind of in the air and what in their world at this time. Dr. Gail Saltz, wish we had a lot more time. I love hearing, I love talking to you, love hearing from you. Thank you for doing this today. Thank you. It's really my pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We live in a big country here in Canada, and so not every story that happens in one part of the country gets the same play in another part of the country. In fact, a lot of stories we don't hear all that much about, but then when we catch wind of them and you hear about these, sometimes it's like, wait a second, this is one we have to talk about. That is the story of Eddie or Edward uh, Maurice is his name, Eddie Maurice. Uh, you may never have heard that name before. Here in Ontario, this story has received, that I've seen anyway, very little play, if any at all. Haven't heard anybody talking about this story. And yet it's one of those stories that I guarantee you that if it happened around here, this would be the thing that everybody is talking about. That is the case in Alberta, apparently. This is the discussion point. Uh, To discuss this, I want to bring in Tyler Dawson. He writes for the National Post. He has covered this story for a while now. Tyler, thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me on. You uh, will hear someone renovating the building over this. That is okay. That's good to know that it's a renovation and it wasn't the UFO (laughs) landing behind you. You were about to be sucked up into the UFO. Kind of sounded like that hovering noise. Um, Let's go through the background. I'm going to give you whatever time you need here. Uh, Tell the background of this story, uh, not necessarily what's just happened, but the whole background Mm -hmm. of what this is all about. Yeah, so this began back in uh, February 2018. And Edward Maurice was at home with one of his daughters. His wife is out of town on business. And his other daughter was staying with her grandparents. Um, Middle of the night, dogs are barking outside. Uh, He gets up, looks out the front window of their their place outside of Okotoks, which is sort of a a bedroom community, kind of Calgary. Um, Looks out the window and sees some people rifling through the, the trucks outside. And so it's, you know, it's, it's middle of the night, early morning kind of thing. Uh, they're, they're not super, 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 super out in the middle of nowhere compared to some people, certainly. But uh, anyways, Edward went and, and grabbed his uh, rifle and opened the door and told them to get off his property kind of thing. And um, then fired two warning shots into the air and the two people took off. So he goes back inside, puts the gun away, phones the police. Um, sometime after that, the police show up and arrest him. Um, now they arrest him and charge him with uh, sort of unsafe operation of a firearm, aggravated assault, you know, those sorts of charges. And then this becomes a big deal. Um, 
in rural Alberta, there's been a real problem with crime, theft, things like that over the past, oh, maybe five years in particular. Um, and so people were mad about this. They were really, really mad that uh, that he, he would be protecting his home, protecting his property, his daughter. Um, and then he would be the one, in fact, who ended up before a judge. So lots of rural folks sort of rallied to his cause, showed up at his court date, things like that. Um, politicians on his side, this kind of thing. And then eventually in about June, I think, so it wasn't really all that long that this went on, maybe about five months, um, the charges were withdrawn. The judge said new information had come to light, so on and so forth. There was no way of convicting. So that's where it stood sort of as of last summer. Um, and then just earlier this month, uh, the, this lawsuit has been filed by Ryan Watson, who was one of the people who was on his land that night. Well, let's um, jump into this for a second. Yeah. because So you've got this Ryan Watson. He was one of the people who was, I guess, can we, do we know, for, we know for sure that he was one of the ones who was rifling through the trucks, right? Yeah, we do. Um, he sort of pleaded out to some separate charges, some lower level charges in court back in February 2019. Um and was sentenced to 45 days in jail, which he didn't actually have to serve because he had uh, been in prison for that sort of period of time. Um, so yes, but he basically said that they were there, they were looking for gas money, happened to see some change in the car, decided to break in. So that that's their side of the story. And one other thing, because most people here are not going to be familiar with Okotoks, when you say it's sort of yeah. out in the... If, if, they had, if, if uh, Edward or Eddie had called the police that night, is it a community that the police would have been there like in two minutes or is this something where it might have been 10 or 15 minutes Mm -hmm. you're right it's a good question um 10 or 15 minutes i think would even be optimistic in sort of anywhere towards rural alberta so as as eddie told it after these guys had left and he went back inside he says he phoned the rcmp and he said it was about two hours before they showed up two hours um yeah so i mean that that's a I wouldn't say that is a normal response time, but but certainly, you know, 10, 15 minutes would be in large, large parts of rural Alberta, a very, very, very fast response time. So if you are living out in one of these places, and of course you've chosen to live in this place, but nonetheless, if you're living in one of these places and you are fearful that someone potentially could break into your house or do something with your daughter there, uh, you would not be of the belief that if they decided they wanted to do some harm, that the police could be there to save you immediately. That is absolutely correct. You'd have to protect yourself. Exactly. And so so one of the reasons why people were so mad about all of this is it was sort of like, okay, we know the police aren't going to be here in time. The police know they can't come in time to help these things. So what do you expect us to do? If we use a gun, you're going to charge us. If we don't use a gun, well, what are our chances of protecting our homes and our families? So this, as as I'm sure you can understand, this, this really, really rubbed people the wrong way. Because I'm guessing, and I don't know what the population would be, but there is a fair number of people who would fall into that category living in rural Calgary, rural Alberta, who would be in a similar situation. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, yeah, there's about 15%, I think, of Albertans live in sort of rural areas outside of the big population. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm with Tyler Dawson of the National Post about this story from Alberta, rural Alberta, Okotoks, of a guy who's at home with his young daughter. Burglars break onto his property. He comes out with a gun, middle of 
like far away from the police response time, he comes out with a gun. Now, one thing we left out of the story, Tyler, is that when he fired the two warning shots, one of them apparently ricocheted and nicked one of the burglars in the arm. Which brings us to what's happened now this week or within the last few days that has really made people out there apparently lose their minds a little bit on this. Tell us what's just happened. Yeah, so so the fellow that was hit with a ricocheted bullet, uh, obviously you had to go to hospital, get some treatment for it. He's filed a lawsuit against Edward Maurice, uh, the guy with the gun. Um, and he wants $100,000 for sort of damages and suffering. And he says that he's got a steel plate in his arm and, and you know, has emotional trauma that stems from this, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, physical pain and discomfort, all those sorts of things that you see semi-regularly in sort of personal injury lawsuits. So, so yeah, you know, a year after he was cleared of criminal charges, Edward Maurice, the fellow who had the gun that night, um, he's now facing a civil suit from the guy he accidentally shot while this person was trying to rob him. So how many people out there, when they hear the person, the burglar, when they hear that he's claiming that he's had pain and he's had to have a metal plate Mm -hmm. and all that, how many people out there are saying, good, good, you should have something? (laughs) Well, you you wouldn't believe my emails today. I mean, uh, there's an awful lot of people that have said, you know, the, the lesson to be learned from this is, to make sure that you don't just injure them, that you actually kill them, which, I mean, mm. a lot of, uh, an awful lot of people are willing to talk tough in emails, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, people are pretty outraged. And it, it's funny, when the guy who was, was shot was sentenced to 45 days in jail for all of this, um, the Crown prosecutor actually even noted that he'd taken a bullet and that that was, you know, in some ways punishment enough for what he'd had to go through. So it's... Um, it's it's been interesting, and there is very much sort of this tough guy attitude that the only thing that went wrong here is that he was Edward didn't kill him and phone the police, which is nuts. But that is certainly the attitude that uh, a certain segment of the population has. Well, I'm whether everybody would have felt that all along, uh, hard to say, I suppose. But certainly, if you are going to file a lawsuit, you're going to bring some of that hate upon yourself. Yeah, that is definitely true. Um, you know, there's a lot of people saying sort of the the law is protecting criminals here and things like that. So, so this fellow, who uh, to my knowledge has not really been in the media, I should say, for the last year and a half, however long this has been going on, um, he's uh, definitely not the most popular guy in Alberta. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna have. A, I was thinking he's gonna have a hard time getting into the courtroom for this lawsuit. Yeah. Oh yeah, there will be protests. I'm sure. Uh, what's weird about this is now, so I, I understand the Attorney General of Alberta has actually mm-hmm. spoken out about this and said, no, this is crazy, but his own department was part of the lawsuit, was it not, at one point? Yeah, it was. So this is sort of a weird quirk that takes a slight amount of explaining. So in Alberta, there's something called the Crown Recovery Act or something similar to that. But the basic gist of it is that in almost all personal injury civil lawsuits, wherein the government has spent money on treating someone for an injury in hospital, the government gets involved in that lawsuit as a third party um, to try and claim back the money it spent on health care from the person who's being sued should they lose the lawsuit. So in other words, um, Ryan Watson was hit with a ricocheted bullet. The Alberta government paid for his hospital care. 
Um, Ryan Watson is now suing Edward Maurice. If Edward Maurice loses that lawsuit, he then becomes liable for whatever costs he is paying to Ryan Watson as a result of the lawsuit. But in theory, would also the government would be getting some money as well to pay for the treatment of the injury that Edward would have caused, which is sort of a roundabout way of saying that this did cause a big uproar, but it's actually sort of, as far as I can tell from my discussions with people in the government, this is a run-of-the-mill government. Automatic thing, thing almost. Yeah, I mean, it looks bad, but this is there's nothing abnormal about this. So what happens in Alberta, honestly, what happens in Alberta, and it, this seems like one of those frivolous lawsuits that I'm assuming that when it gets to court, Eddie Maurice is going to ask for a jury, I would bet, because there's no chance he loses a jury trial on this one, I would assume. But let's say that he were to lose and that mm-hmm. Taylor was to win this thing. What's the response in Alberta? I think people are going to be really mad. Um, and 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 I think that also poses a little bit of a political problem for the provincial government because they are going big on hearing people's concerns about rural crime, coming up with a strategy on rural crime. As it happens, the justice minister is actually going to be in Okotoks in the next week or so to talk to people down there. Um, so, you know, it, it's one of those things where obviously a politician can't really interfere in, in the justice system or the civil courts but um but people are going to be really mad people will see this as the justice system protecting criminals and protecting people that uh maybe don't deserve to be protected so it's i think it's probably going to be kind of a messy ugly sort of thing um because it it was last time when it was a criminal case it's uh, it's a fascinating story. It's, it's uh, you can you can read more about it. Uh, Tyler Dawson, you can see your stuff in the National Post. Lots of people are writing about it. Tyler, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. It is, uh, I mean, just, I think everybody can imagine this one. This is what makes this thing so visceral for people. You're protecting, or you feel like you're protecting your infant daughter and your house in the middle of nowhere from guys who you don't know what their intentions are. <laughs> Not only do you get charged, but then you end up being sued for this. It is, um, we've had cases like this around here and not even that long ago. And every single time it happens, boy, oh boy, oh boy, the, uh, the visceral disdain for the people who claim to be victims after they victimize someone, it's not a good thing to be those people in the end. You might get a few bucks, but man, oh man, oh man, you better not show your face in that city again. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have you heard about the movie that's coming out called Joker? It's the pre-story, the introductory story, the backstory of the Joker from Batman. And Joaquin Phoenix is in it and he is getting rave reviews. They're already talking about an Academy Award for him. The movie looks really intriguing, looks really incredible. And as I say, the reviews are over the top. Uh, a number of people giving it five stars, five thumbs up, 10 out of 10, whatever you want to call it. And the trailer for it looks really intriguing. I'm not a superhero movie fan. Don't love the Superman movies and Spider-Man and all that stuff. But this one to me looks very intriguing. However, there is a second point on this that's getting a lot of attention right now. And you can see this when you read online reviews from critics who are already diving into this one a little bit. Here are some of the things you're hearing about it. Joker is a dangerous film and it's bringing out the worst in the internet. 
Uh, Joker wants to be a movie about the emptiness of our culture. Instead, it's prime and danger, a, pr- a prime and dangerous example of it. Vanity Fair says uh, Joker, which they deemed a deeply troubling origin story, may be irresponsible propaganda for the very men it pathologizes. The, is the Joker celebratory or horrified? Or is there simply no difference? Now, it goes on. There's lots of other examples of comments that are being made online about this. Here is the most... The, the one that really, I think, hits the, the nub of what we're talking about right here. And again, this is from Time Magazine, and they, they r- ripped the film. They say, and there's a quote, It's not as if we don't know how this pathology works. In America, there's a mass shooting or attempted act of violence by a guy like Arthur Fleck, that's the name of the character, practically every other week. And yet we're supposed to feel some sympathy for Arthur, the troubled lamb. So the question becomes, do you think that there is or could be a connection between violence in Hollywood and real life violence? In this story, as I understand it, I have not seen the movie yet. I probably will. I haven't seen it yet. But as I understand it, what the story is from looking at the trailer and everything else is you have this guy who is a bit of an outcast from society, is bullied, is harmed, whatever else, and he snaps and becomes the Joker, which then goes on a violent spree. And as Time Magazine says, is this not kind of the background story of most of the people who do mass shootings? Someone who's on the out, someone who's ostracized, someone who's not part of normal society or not included, feels like he's on the outside, and then goes off and does something terrible. That, that kind of describes a lot of the acts of violence that we see right now. And what they're saying is, what Time Magazine is saying, and what a lot of these reviewers are saying is, great movie or not, is it dangerous to portray people like that as sympathetic characters? Because there are people out there who are unstable. There are people out there who may identify with this character when they see it. And if they then see this person as a sympathetic character, does that give the okay? Does that give the thumbs up to say, you know what? If, if society treats you like crap, yeah, yeah, it's kind of a good thing to fight back. Take matters into your own hands. Well, is there a connection between violence and Hollywood? I want to know what you think on this one. Everybody has an opinion on this. I know you have. You've thought about this one before. Do you believe that violent movies that come out of Hollywood or violent TV shows, and heaven knows there is no shortage of them. Holy cow. Turn on your TV any night of the week, watch TV for a couple hours a night, and you are almost guaranteed to see at least one trailer of a movie that will involve violence. And maybe the show you're watching is a violent show to begin with. You cannot, in our society, go through very long being exposed to any kind of media and not be exposed to violence. But do you believe that there is a connection between these things that you see on TV or in the movies and people acting it out? Not everyone. Now, here's where things get tangled up a little bit because people say, well, no, I come on, I've watched lots of movies. I've played lots of video games. I've watched lots of TV shows. I've never picked up a gun and gone and shot anyone. I don't think the question here is, does it make everybody act violent? Do you think there can be a connection though? Or is Hollywood 
completely freed of this, wash their hands and say, it's just art. No one went and saw a painting of the Mona Lisa and decided they had to dress like the Mona Lisa. I don't know. What would you do if you saw the Mona Lisa? Do you think, though, that this can inspire stuff? I'll tell you what. I I lean towards yes. I do. I lean towards the fact that, yes, I do believe that movies and TV shows can, in some people, inspire this stuff. And it's not a popular view, especially with people in Hollywood. Believe me, you... Joaquin Phoenix was asked about this in an interview. He was doing the rounds for the media interviews for this. And one of the reporters asked him about this. He got up and walked out of the interview. Didn't want to talk about the fact that maybe this character, maybe this movie could inspire people. But here, I'll tell you why I believe that there is a connection or there can be a connection. By the way, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Do you believe... There can be a connection between violence that we see, not even necessarily in one movie, although it could be, but just the overwhelming deluge of violence we see all the time and people acting out in a violent way. Here's why I believe that it probably can. You can agree or you can disagree. Last year in the Super Bowl, companies paid $5 million for a 30-second ad. $5 million for a 30-second ad. Now, they weren't violent ads. But the people who pay $5 million for an ad have obviously done some research on whether or not that makes any kind of sense. And their marketing people and their studies and all the rest of this stuff have clearly shown that there is value in putting that ad on TV, that you can affect people's behavior. Now, what you're hoping to affect is their buying behavior, their shopping behavior. But you're not going to put an ad on TV if you don't think it's going to have any impact at all. That's not even the best example though, because we have other companies and you go ahead and watch TV and you will see the same ad popping up time after time after time. There is clearly a belief that a clever ad or an ad that resonates with you will affect you in a way that will cause you to change your behavior in some way. It will affect you. So if you're watching TV and you see a beer ad, Not everybody is going to go out and buy a beer or get a beer from the fridge right away. But if you are so inclined that you're thinking, I'd like a beer, I'm thinking I might be okay with a beer. And you suddenly see the ad on TV, that can affect your behavior. If you see a food ad on TV, how many pizza ads are there? And what's the hope? That the pizza, you're going to see a pizza ad on TV and you're going to call up and you're going to order a pizza. And you know what? They don't do those ads. They don't put the ads on TV unless there's some evidence that people are going to actually follow through and buy that pizza. Remember that series of commercials for Dos Equis beer with the most interesting man in the world? Remember those commercials? They were great. They were terrific commercials. Well, the numbers said that Dos Equis beer sales, when those commercials started, went up 22%. 22% more people decided they wanted to buy that brand of beer that they'd never tried before because they saw a commercial. It affected behavior. So if commercials can cause you, repeated exposure to commercials can cause you to change your behavior, why is it ludicrous to think that repeated exposure to violence couldn't for some people? change their behavior. Let me go to the phone. Frank is up first. Frank, how are you today? 
I'm quite well, and it's very interesting your your topic uh, tonight, uh, as as many of your topics are. Scott, when you talk like this, the first thing that comes to my mind is subliminal advertising. That, which is which is a lot of it. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, wait. A you said there's a lot of it. Now, I was always brought to the belief that subliminal advertising, in a deliberate way, is illegal. Right? Well, I don't know if it's. I, I don't know what you exactly mean by which part of it would be illegal. I mean, you can put things in a background, or you can do other things that you may not notice right up front, but that somehow okay. you become aware let, of. Let me let me put it this. Let me put it to you better this way. The effects of subliminal advertising, or the ultimate effect of subliminal advertising, is legal. Is illegal, uh, you know. And like so, the I don't know how they gauge this. There, they find there is a technique. I, I didn't. I, I'm sorry, I didn't research this before I called you. But I was always told, you know, back in my day when I was taking lessons on things, but that that you cannot advertise subliminally. You can only. But then, just I'm going to fast forward on this. Now that we got into this high technology world, and you touched on this about being able to change somebody's identity on a picture, you have well, I have to wonder at least as to whether the subliminal advertising is creeping through on just about everything that goes on the screen that that provokes people to do something or encourages it to do something almost out of will. Let's think about that. Maybe. Frank, I thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Let, let me, uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900. So Frank's idea is that you don't necessarily realize that you're being, you're having your opinion changed. Well, that's kind of this thing. I don't think that anybody has ever watched a violent movie and said, you know what? That looks kind of fun to blow someone away. I, I Maybe that's happened. I'm sure there have been psychopaths who have, but... I don't think that I, my suggestion is that a lot of this stuff, advertising normalizes the behavior. It makes it seem very normal, very natural, makes it like something you want to do. Well, if you see enough violence, is it not feasible at least? Is it not reasonable to ponder the idea that if you see enough acts of violence in your life and you are not quite stable that you could come to the conclusion that the proper way or the normal way to deal with a problem is through violence. And again, this, every time you, every time you hear this topic come up with people who are in Hollywood or you hear people who are in the movie or the entertainment community, it's always poo-pooed. It's always dismissed immediately that it never could have any impact, that it's just art. It's just art. you can't eliminate the fact that there are people who are not stable. And should that mean that we never have anything that could possibly trigger anyone who's not stable? I'm not even suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting censorship. I'm not going down that road even remotely. I'm not, I just said off the top that I'll probably go and see this movie. But that doesn't mean that all these critics who have seen it now or who have gone through and watched this don't have a point in saying, look, a movie about a guy who's on the fringes of society, who feels like an outcast, who feels as though society has drummed him down and beaten him down and who finally snaps, discovers salvation for lack of a better word in a violent outburst. And in the movie is portrayed as a 
apparently, I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm going by what the reviews are saying, but it's portrayed as kind of a sympathetic character. Does it not follow that maybe some people who feel like that guy, like that character may say, huh? I mean, there was a reason once upon a time, we don't do it much anymore for better or for worse. There was a reason once upon a time when we in the media didn't talk about suicide. Now, we can have all kinds of discussions about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that we talk more about suicides now. But the reason once upon a time that suicides were not mentioned in the paper or on the news somewhere is because there was a belief that you don't want to normalize it or you don't want to make it look like doing this would lead to great sympathy or great acclaim or make it something that would make you a star of some kind or give you that moment where you had some sort of power in a way because we don't want to encourage other people to imitate. Now, again, we can have debates about whether that's a good way or a bad way, but it's kind of similar. Let me go to Holly. Holly, how are you tonight? I'm great, and I love your topic. Thank you. Um, 50 years ago in Toronto, we were talking about this. We wondered... Um, as a teenager, we wondered what was going to happen. I went to York Mills Collegiate in Toronto, and the teachers would ask us, it, should little children be seeing all this violence? And as a stay-at-home mother, I raised seven children with my husband, and I have seen a total change in people's behavior. It has affected our whole society. It's totally different to live in southwestern Ontario now. And I'll give you an example. When we went to high school as teenagers, we walked in groups, maybe four or five teenagers in one group, and then a little ways down the sidewalk, there'd be another group of teenagers, and they'd be laughing, happy, you know, casual, um, everybody cheerful. We were looking forward to the football game and the basketball game and the dance that was happening. Teenagers today suffer from anxiety, depression. Um, a lot of them are taking drugs. Uh, it's a complete change. And they can't express themselves. They can't talk to each other. It used to be that if somebody saw my mother walking down the street, oh, a teenager, they'd go up and say, oh, hello, Mrs. So-and-so, how are you today? And my mother would talk to the teenager. She would know all the children, all the teenagers on our street. Um, and our way of life is totally different. Holly, I appreciate the call. You're absolutely right. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate that. He, let me throw one other thing out there. And again, I, I am not, I haven't studied this. It's just my thoughts on looking at this and then reading this story about this movie, The Joker, which once again, I'm not dumping on The Joker. Apparently it's a fantastic movie. It's just that they've raised some questions about this. Is it incredibly ridiculous to say, you know, in the States now, especially we didn't always, they didn't always have the problem with violence that they do now. They didn't always, we're having more issues of violence in Canada than we've ever had before. Is it crazy to say that perhaps this generation that is having these issues has been 
bathed in violent images for their whole life. And those people, again, it's not everybody by any stretch. It's a very small number, but the people who were involved in this, it may have been normalized. Some people are going to say, I'm completely out of my mind. That's fine. Those people are not listening because, again, I'm not saying that you or you or you watching a violent movie is going to turn you into a mass murderer. That's not it whatsoever. But that's not, but whenever Hollywood just goes, there's nothing to it. Well, now even the critics are saying this may be of some concern because normalizing this kind of behavior makes even them uncomfortable. And they're the people who work in the industry or around the industry writing about these movies. Esther's on the line. Esther, how are you? Yes, fine. Thank you, Scott. Um, I just wanted to comment that um, I'm thinking that if I uh, am, want to follow the golden rule to um, love my neighbor as myself and do unto others as, as I would have them do unto me, then I won't do anything that would cause a weaker uh, brother or sister to stumble in one way or another. So um, I don't know whether you can see where I'm going with that, but that's that's a thought that came to my mind. So Esther, I, I thank I, you for that. No, it's a, it's a good thought. I thank you for that. It's um, look, we got to go over here. I don't know what the answer to this is. I don't know what the answer to this is. I the only point I come from this when I when I read this story today, the first story about this, and then started diving into a little more, is that it seems to me that. Hollywood has been very quick at every turn, and you can understand why, to dismiss this concept entirely, to absolutely just throw this concept off and say it's ludicrous. And I'm willing to bet you that if we had a producer on who was behind any kind of really violent movie or series of movies, they would tell me to my face right now that I am barking up the wrong tree and that I'm completely off base. I'm just looking at this saying, it seems to me that perhaps we shouldn't dismiss it quite so quickly. If even the people who are writing about the movies now for a living, who, as I said, live in or right around this world, are now showing enough concern when you see what's going on with violence and everything else. I don't even know what we would do with that. Does it mean that you never have violent movies again? I don't think so. I don't think so. Does it mean perhaps that we should be a little more aware when people who are in our life who, or who we see who are maybe on the fringes like the character in this movie, should we be maybe watching that? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I just, I just, it was so interesting to me to, to, to ponder this today and to think, you know, there would be those who would say that there's nothing to this whatsoever. I don't, I don't agree with that. I really don't agree with that. And I go back to my first point. If things that you see repeatedly have no impact on affecting your behavior, have none whatsoever, then the entire advertising industry would have died 50 years ago. Clearly, repeated exposure to certain ideas, certain thoughts, certain products, certain behaviors has been shown to affect people and to change behaviors or they wouldn't keep doing it. They wouldn't keep advertising it. If McDonald's had never seen any kind of benefit from ongoing advertising that they hadn't sold more Big Macs and more whatever, more French fries, McDonald's spends hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising. Do you not think that they could use that money better if it wasn't moving any product 
would they not stop and just enjoy the money they have? Somehow it's got a repeated exposure has to affect people in a certain way. Radley at 900CHML.com if you have a thought and you want to continue with that. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.